morning. <laughs> good, good morning, everyone. I didn't expect that wonderful introduction. I'm going to walk around here for just a second until I find a spot that doesn't squeal and m make noise, and I think you'll all be able to hear me. So good morning. It is such a blessing to be in God's house this morning and to have the privilege of bringing a message to you from God's Word. Um, I want to thank Mike. As you can tell, he's not here, and I'm not Mike. Uh, <laughs> your, your necks won't hurt a lot more today, I'm, I'm sure. Thanks, Iris, for switching me over. Um, I'll start, and you'll see some pictures later. I am going to share a little with you, um, go along, about um, our experience, Allison and I. Um, our former church knew it well because they lived it with us, and I know you all haven't. I'll share a little of that with you. But uh, first, I'd like to look at a, a few things from the Bible that amazed me as I was getting ready to bring this message this morning. You know, um, three times in the Bible, I see it. I can see it on the computer. You, you guys just can't see it. <laughs> we'll get that worked out. Three times in the Bible... Jesus is recorded as having wept. Just three times. Once was um, over the death of Lazarus, a friend of his and Mary and Martha's. And that was really a very personal thing. It was, it was with people that he knew. And we'll look maybe in a, a little bit here at, at to why uh, it was uh, the way it was. The second came fairly close after that on his entry into Jerusalem. He looked at Jerusalem and he wept for Jerusalem. He wept for the Jewish people. He wept for what he knew was coming in their future. He wept because perhaps they had not been the light, the beacon to the Gentiles that they had been meant to be. Um, but he wept for Jerusalem, a city much larger than just one person. Finally, Jesus wept in Gethsemane the night before he was crucified. Some might say that that was a very personal weeping because it was in a conversation with his father. Father, if it can be, let this cup pass from me. But your will, not mine. But I don't believe that Jesus wept just for himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm not sure that he wept for himself at all. Jesus knew that he was about to bear the weight of every sin of every human in the world. And more than him weeping for Jerusalem, I believe that that night in Gethsemane, he wept for the world. So chronologically, as he goes through time, his, his weeping gets broader and broader to encompass every one of us. John chapter 11 I'll give you a minute if you have your Bible to turn over there, and I am not going to read that, nor am I going to ask Pastor Aris to read the entire chapter. And the one focus verse I'd like to look at was so short, I didn't ask him to read that either, um, but, but I will in a moment. I would kind of like to take one or two moments to give you the Reader's Digest version of John chapter 11. If I could just read one chapter in the Bible to someone to tell them what faith is about, what patience is about, what Jesus Christ is about, what salvation is about, I might 
turn them to John chapter 11. I'll try not to get going too fast with my Reader's Digest version, but just listen as we go along. So beginning at John 11, 1. Lazarus is sick. People send for Jesus, but Jesus waits. He doesn't run to heal Lazarus. His disciples warn him, Jesus, don't go. You'll be killed. Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in a day? In other words, the time is right for things, and there are wrong times and right times. Lazarus sleeps, he says. His disciples say, oh, well, if he's asleep, he'll be okay. And Jesus says, no, no, he's not asleep. He's dead, just so there's no doubt. He's dead. So let's go. Thomas says, well, then we'll go and die with you, Jesus. Jesus comes to Bethany to comfort Martha first comes to Jesus and says, if only you had been here, Jesus. If you had just been here a few days ago, my brother Lazarus could be alive today. If only you had been here. Jesus says, Lazarus will rise. Martha, in faith, says, yes, at the last day, at the resurrection. And Jesus says, no. I am the way. I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe, you will see something amazing. And Martha says, I believe you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. Then Mary comes. And Mary says, If you had only been here, Jesus, my brother Lazarus, would not have to be dead and in the grave. You could have prevented his death. You could have healed him. Jesus groans with the mourners. His heart is troubled. And he asks, where have you laid him? Not that Jesus didn't know exactly where he laid. Through this whole thing, Jesus involves the people that are around him. Then... Jesus wept. Now the Jews who had followed Mary said, See how he loved him, Lazarus? Why did he let him die? Surely he could have healed him. Why did he let him die? Jesus says, Roll back the stone. In one of the greatest moments of foreshadowing in the Bible, Jesus says, Roll back the stone. Martha says, oh no, Lord, he has been in the grave four days. There will be a stench. We should not roll back the stone. Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you had faith, you would see God's glory? Then Jesus takes a moment to pray. He thanks the Father God for hearing his prayer. And he says, not that I need to pray and thank you for hearing my prayer, because I know you always hear my prayer, but they need to know. The people need to know that you hear my prayer. God says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus lives. He walks out bandaged, and and Jesus says, let him loose. Now, some of the Jews believe. Others do not. And they rush to tell the Pharisees what has happened. To warn them. What shall we do? He will cost us our power. 
Caiaphas, the high priest, in a moment of God-given wisdom says, you know nothing. And he prophesies that one will die for all. The Jews plot to kill Jesus. Jesus goes into the countryside. Passover is coming. And the question at the end of the chapter is, will Jesus come to Jerusalem for the Passover as the Jews plot to kill him? Okay, that's the Reader's Digest version. There is more in that chapter. I could probably preach a dozen sermons on that chapter alone, and I will not today. You'll thank me. Um, I want to take one second, though, and just look at... It's now... I know how else this will work. Yeah, thanks. Just put me on the one that says Jesus wept. So turn back with me then to John 11.35. Well known because it's the shortest verse. If you're having trouble memorizing Bible verses, start with this one. Jesus wept. I got that one down. There are a few others I struggle with and confuse with another verse or so, but this one I've got. Jesus wept. But why? Why did Jesus weep? Jesus knows, he's already told Mary and Martha, that he's going to go and raise Lazarus from the dead. He's about to perform what is, I would say, the most amazing and powerful miracle of his entire ministry. Jesus is going to bring a man who has been dead four days out of the grave, and he's going to walk and talk and live and and go among his fellow faithful. But he weeps. Why does Jesus weep? I think um, he weeps from empathy. In the previous verse, we heard that his spirit groaned because he saw the anguish on the faces of all of his friends. Mary and Martha had come to him in anguish. All of the Jews who followed Mary back to the grave were in mourning for Lazarus who was gone. It's a Jewish custom, actually, that they would have probably mourned for a week on his death, and then the family would have mourned for a month about his death. They actually would have gone to a group of um, uh, elders and prayed a prayer called the Kaddish, I believe it is, every day for a week. Jesus wept because it was the right thing to do, I believe. There's a, there's a theory in psychology, and we won't go too deeply into it, but it's basically called meeting the mourner, meeting someone where they are. Now, if Jesus knew all these things, he was going to raise Lazarus. He could have come with a big smile on his face and said, I am going to raise Lazarus from the grave. It would have been very difficult for them to receive that where they were. They wouldn't have understood, and they might have been very offended, and they might not have listened. So Jesus goes where they are. He also, in my estimation, shows just how human he was. He is certainly God, but in this two-word verse, he is fully human. He is brokenhearted for the grief of his friends. He is in anguish because they are troubled. So he goes to them and he weeps with them. It's an empathetic thing. He feels their grief and pain, and he weeps with them. 
it also begins to comfort them because they can see that their leader, this person that they look up to, is also heartbroken over the death of their friend and brother, Lazarus. So grief, what is it? Sometimes people confuse grief with, um, uh, you know, grief, grief is an emotion, and it's easy to confuse that with the loss. So usually first you, you suffer a loss of some sort, and then you grieve. It's easy to break it down and just say, well, it's an emotion. It, it's a natural human reaction to loss, but it's not just the loss of a person. It could be the loss of your health. I've known many people grieving because they were ill. Um, it could be the loss of a job. I know many people who have grieved because they felt secure in their job. Suddenly they'd lost their job, and it's very easy to fall into a pattern of, of grief without even realizing it over the loss of a job. It could be the loss of a dream, a dream you had always had, and for one reason or another, it's not going to come true. And at the moment you realize that that dream is no longer going to be your dream, you can suffer grief for that because it was your dream. Maybe a loss of mobility. Um, when you can't get around as well, you can grieve because suddenly things you could do yesterday, you can't do today. And of course, there's the one that we all think of when you lose a person that you love. Um, when you lose a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a son, or a spouse, even a good friend, it's very natural that you, you grieve. It's very easy to say that grief is an emotion and stop there. But it's, it's important to think about this for a moment too. Grief is much more than just emotional. There are many, many facets to grief. So think with me for just a moment about this. It's not only emotional, it's physical. I, I know that people physically hurt when they grieve. Their muscles can become tense. Their head will ache. Their, their entire body can feel discombobulated. They can be in pain, true pain, because of grief. It's also cognitive, and that's a big word for your brain. How many people know someone who has been in the fog of loss? I, I certainly do. Um, when things, you just can't think straight. You, you've been impacted by grief to the point where nothing seems to make sense, where you just can't put one and two together and get three for the moment. It's also behavioral. Um, it will impact people's behavior. You know, someone who's been very calm and, and very collected may suddenly have outbursts, uh, have anger, have... Um, uh, reactions in, in ways that you would not expect to, to stimulus, to input. It's, um, grief has a, a social facet, too, because sometimes people who are grieving the loss of someone don't um, like to associate with the people they've previously associated with because immediately it brings to mind that loss. It has philosophical implications. And I don't want to get too deep on that one either, but, but basically people's worldview, the way that people believe things happen, can certainly be shaken when someone who's important to them is suddenly lost. Um, it can be a real challenge. To me, I believe the most important facet, the biggest challenge in grief is that it has a facet 
of spiritual challenge. Um, Even the most deeply believing Christian can be challenged when someone they love is suddenly taken from them. God, why did you let Lazarus die? Jesus, why didn't you come and save Lazarus? I, I won't ask for a survey, but if I, if I ask for hands to go up, I'll bet you dozens would go up to say, I have said that. I have said, God, why did you let this happen? It's a challenge to our spiritual well-being. It's a challenge to our faith when we don't understand what God is doing in allowing the death of a person that we know and love. Well, let me say a couple of things more about grief, and then we'll move on to the scriptures. There is no right way to grieve. I think there are a few wrong ways, but there is no right way to grieve. Different people grieve in different ways. Different people experience the grief in a different way and deal with it in a different way. Um, People will often say, how can I support someone who's grieving? We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Um... There's no right way to go through grief as long as you go through grief. Don't get stuck in grief. That's where grief can become so damaging to your life is when you begin to grieve and you never leave grief. That will become destructive. All right, I want to share a few things with you. If you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read just verse 3 and 4. This is Paul writing his second, maybe his third, letter to the church at Corinth. And in his very introduction, he starts off, because they're experiencing some challenges, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. It's hard to miss the fact that Paul, in one sentence, wrote comfort four times. What is the greatest need, often, of someone who is first in a deep grief? They need comfort. They don't need words of wisdom because they won't hear them. They're in that fog. Uh, They don't need philosophy because they can't philosophize. They probably, at that very moment don't throw stones at me, don't need a scripture verse. There are a hundred scripture verses plus in the Bible that talk about loss and grief and comfort. None of them will get through to that person at that moment of loss. They're all right. They're correct. But you can be right and not be helpful. Um, So if, if you want to be helpful, maybe save that for another day down the road when you're still there. So Paul says, though, that God is a God of compassion, the Father of compassion, and He is a God of comfort and comforts us in our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with that same comfort that we ourselves receive from God. So God gives us a gift of comfort, and we need it, and we accept it, and we use it, but then we turn one day, maybe not that day, And we find someone else who needs that gift and we give it away. It's not a gift we're meant to keep. 
smiling face on the upper left is our son, Tony, a number of years ago. Our daughter, Melanie, in the front. You may or may not be able to recognize Allison and I, but <laughs> we still look a little like that. This is from the memorial flyer that we handed out at Tony's memorial service. He was 20 years old and a half. At the age of 17, he was um, stricken with Hodgkin's disease, a form of cancer. Um, he was treated. He went through a successful, it seemed, chemotherapy and radiation sequence. And very shortly thereafter, went off to his first semester of college, at which he excelled and where he had a great time. Uh, he came home to Alaska for the summer. And we went through the summer and uh, did a lot of things together. He was feeling pretty good. Uh, he seemed to be in remission. And toward the end of the summer, we had his first follow-up scan. And there were a few spots. And they said, well, we're, we're concerned about that. They checked it out, and he started another series of radiation. Um, eventually, he... Uh, had a bone marrow transplant. This, this progressed over about two and a half years. He had another series of chemotherapy to prepare him, prepare him for a bone marrow transplant. Had the bone marrow transplant. Came home. Seemed to be recovering. Plateaued. And within two months, he was gone. Um, he was 20 and a half. It was about 11 years ago now. Um, last, the 25th, whatever that was, um, four days ago, he would have been 31 years old. So it's been about 11 years since we lost him. He was six foot eight. That's this tall. <laughs> he, yeah, big guy. He was my only son. It was not an easy time. When um, I was not actually very far from here, when his last test was um, red after he'd had an MRI and a PET scan. I was in Penang, Malaysia, probably one of the places where communications back to the States is about as difficult as it gets. And I called home over the Internet and talked to Allison, and she said the test results were not good. There was nothing I could do at that moment. I had just one more leg to fly before I got home. So the very next day, I was supposed to fly from Penang to uh, Incheon, and then the next day, Incheon home. Commercial flight couldn't have got me home any faster than just working, so I worked on the way home. In that room, after I got off the phone with Allison, I argued with God. I was angry. I had a reaction that I've never had. And I, I argued with God. I realized later that I, I, I did pray. I asked a lot of questions. I wanted to know why, because things had looked so hopeful. I prayed two prayers that I didn't really realize were prayers. I kind of thought at the moment they were complaints, but... God is a big, big, loving, fatherly God. 
And I believe that he heard my prayer, even though I didn't say it very well as a prayer. I was thumbing through my Bible and I ran across Philippians 1, 6. It says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until that day. And I said, God, how can you give me this now? In my loss, in my fear, in my pain, in my grief, how can you give me that you will be faithful to complete a good work when my son is such a beautiful, wonderful, good work? So promising a life ahead of him. And yet it looks like it's going to be cut short. Certainly we prayed for healing. Certainly we prayed for a miracle. God gave us miracles. He didn't give us the miracle of healing. But he gave us miracles. And in his time, he answered my prayer. But that night, it was like I was on the telephone and the line was dead. No buzz, no click, no whisper. Nothing. So I went on. And I thought about my son and I said, you know, God, I I can accept it if he's going to die because as a Christian, trust me, we all want to get there. We want to be with the Savior. We want to be in the presence of God. If that's our goal, whether we get there, as my son later said, in 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, 80 years, what's the difference? We still want to get there. But that night, I said, God, I understand if you are going to allow him to die. I I understand. What I don't understand is if he has to lose his life. When he was first diagnosed, two and a half years before that night, he was moments from death. We didn't know it, but his esophagus was impinged by growing cancer. His heart was being pressed on by fluid in the pericardial sac. He was under enough stress that he could have been gone like that. And I said, God, if you're going to let him die, why didn't you just let him die then and not have to put up with these two and a half years of treatments, of of radiation and chemotherapy and everything he's been through, the bone marrow transplant. Why didn't you just take him then? I sound a little like Martha and Mary. Jesus, if you'd only been here. I got the same answer, by the way. Deadline. Nothing. God is faithful. About a month and a half later, sitting in a hospital room with my son and my wife and my daughter, a room that I knew my son would never leave alive, I got the answer to both of those questions. First, my son was on the phone with a very good friend of his, another Christian young man who was married. Tony challenged him to be the best father that he could be. Um, He and David talked for a while, and David said, Tony, I want you to know that my church, my accountability group, the choir, we're all praying for you. Tony said, David, don't do that. 
I was kind of taken aback. He said, David, you don't need to pray for me anymore. David said, why, of course we do. And Tony said, no. He said, I know where I'm going. And it's not going to be long. I know where I'm going. And he said, pray for someone who needs your prayer. He said, as a matter of fact, he said, I can't do very much right now. I can't even turn over in the bed. If I slide down, I can't move myself up. I have to ask for help. But he said, there is one thing that I can do. You'll pardon me if this still gets me. (laughs) There is one thing that I can do. I can still pray. He said, is there someone in your church that needs prayer? Is there somebody I can pray for? Here, my dying son, in his last 72 hours, says, David, one thing left I can do is pray. Would you tell me somebody I can pray for? And David told him of a friend of his that that Tony had known at college who'd gotten married. His wife was not a Christian, and they had a little girl. Her name was Olivia. I don't remember the couple's name, but I remember Olivia because we prayed for Olivia. There's a whiteboard in the room at the foot of Tony's bed, and the nurses would write who was on shift and who was off, who was coming next. And Tony asked me to write Olivia's name on that board, and I took a dry erase marker, and I wrote Olivia and her parents' names. And every now and then, in the next couple of days, I would look up and see Tony look at that board. And I know that he prayed for Olivia. At that moment when I heard Tony ask for someone to pray for, I heard God's voice. I don't often, God does not often just speak to me in real words. When he does, it gets my attention. He only said four words. He said, now do you see? Seems ambiguous, but trust me, at that moment, I knew exactly what he meant. I had asked him, how this good work would ever be completed when my son would not live to see 21. And David was one of the answers. His prayers, his impact on other people continues to cause ripples 11 years down the road. I know people who trust Jesus today because of an encounter with Tony or of an encounter with a friend who knew Tony and who talked to Tony in those last days. I got the answer to that one. And I realized then that if God had answered me at the moment in my anger, in my grief, in my frustration, when I said, God, how can you say this? How can you say that you will complete this work in me when my son is dying? I would not have understood anything he had said at that moment. But about a month and a half later, having gone through everything we went through together, I knew exactly what he meant. It took four words to touch my heart and say, his work will go on. He may not walk this earth today, but there are people whose lives are changed because of my son, Tony, and the story that we've shared of his and the people that he touched. My second prayer in anger. God, if he's going to die anyway, why did he have to suffer so much? Why didn't you just take him? 
The next day, Tony had a friend come by. It was actually David's little sister. She sat and held his hand for a very long time. They'd sung together in the choir. They'd been friends. Uh, she was slightly humorously abused by my son and her brother. They used to play what they called the Heidi Fall Down game. And it was, you know, one of these two big boys, usually, you know, David, her brother, they would be walking down the hall or something and just accidentally bump Heidi into the sofa or, or into the bed. And she would laugh and they would laugh. And, and later that's one of the things that she actually remembered and shared with us is, I'm going to miss the Heidi Fall Down game. As much as I hated it then, I'm going to miss it now. They knew each other well, and she came into his room, and she sat and held his hand and talked with him and just spent time with him that he loved. But it did make him tired. He had little energy left. His favorite teacher, it won't surprise you to know that it was his choir teacher, not your typical choir teacher. Ron Lang used to be a bodyguard for the Dallas Cowboys. Then he went on to teach in choir. So he had a lot of the football players in his choir. Good bass section. Um, Ron Lang came. And unlike Heidi, who sat and shared words and things with him for an hour, I think Ron Lang might have said half a dozen words, maybe. He sat on Tony's bed and put his hand on him, and he just loved on the student that he had loved. He couldn't say much, and I understood that. When Ron left and, and Heidi was still there, I could see my son, Tony, kind of look at us with those eyes going, I have put out about all I have to put out. And he looked at us and kind of went like this. And I think Allison caught the signal first and helped Heidi find a comfortable way to go. I only tell you that because it's the prelude to the answer. When they left, Tony looked so drained, gray, tired, fatigued, worn out. And he closed his eyes and he lay down in his bed and he closed his eyes for about half an hour. And then my brother Larry called to encourage him. He had done it before. My brother Larry was also battling cancer. He died 11 months after my, my son Tony did. Um, but Larry had been given a prognosis of about three to four months to live. He lived almost two years. He's stubborn in a very good way. Uh, he stuck with some treatments. I don't think anybody else would, but he and Tony supported each other off and on. Tony would talk to my brother. My brother would talk to Tony. That night, my brother called, and he said, I just want to talk to Tony for a minute, if I could. And I said, well, he's just had some visitor, and he's very tired. Lately, I mean, the last hour... He's not answering in words. He's just like nodding his head. So he's very tired. And Larry said, that's okay. I, I can talk to him. So I asked Tony, I said, do you want to talk to Larry? And uh, he said, okay. And he sat up a little bit and he put the phone to his ear. I've never seen energy flow into a person like I saw at that moment. His face pinked up. His eyes brightened. My brother said two words, and my son talked for the next seven minutes, encouraging my brother, who he knew was going through this same battle. And he said, Larry, I just want to tell you, from someone who is closer than you are, but going down the same road, 
you will always find the strength. You will always find the strength that you need. And I heard that voice one more time. Now do you see? And that was the answer to God. Why didn't you just take my son two and a half years ago so he didn't have to suffer through all this? He was there for my brother. My brother was there for him. They had a relationship that both of them remembered until the day they left. I don't think that was the only reason. But that building up one of the other from two people suffering through the same thing is a powerful, powerful thing. That's true for you and I too. If you have suffered grief, I, I, I want to do this and please um, don't feel like you have to hold up your hand, but I'm going to ask you because I know this. When we lost a child before it was born, I had no idea how many people had had miscarriages. When I was diagnosed with diabetes, I had no idea how many people deal with diabetes. When we lost a child, I had no idea how many people around me had walked that same road. So if you feel comfortable with this, would you do me a favor? If you have lost a parent, would you hold your hand up? Don't feel, don't feel like you have to. Look around you. There are people, if you should suffer that same kind of loss, who have walked that road before you. If you have lost, go ahead and put your hands down. If you have lost a sibling, if you've lost a brother or a sister, put your hands up. If you have been unfortunate enough to lose a spouse, would you? Thankfully, I don't see many hands. If you have lost a child, born or unborn, please hold up your hand. There are more hands in the air than you would think. God has equipped every one of those people to be an encourager. Because why? Because he got me through. I could not have done this without God's strength. I could never have gone through that week on the strength of my body. There are many other stories that I don't have time to share with you. I went through a whole week. I slept less than two hours a day for seven days. That was not my strength. I fly for FedEx. I've flown in the Air Force. I know how far I can push my body, and trust me, I cannot do that. You could offer me 10 million American dollars right here, right now, to stay up two hours, you know, 22 hours a day for the next week, Three days, I would be flat on my face. That energy did not come from me. There were people praying for us day and night, and I felt it. I felt the energy that God sent because his saints supported us. They cared for us. They loved on us. They helped us. They supported us. And when we needed it, they gave us a little space to honor our son. When he left this earth, we were privileged to hear, and, and I, I don't want to go into the theology or the philosophy of this. I'll just tell you right out because it's what I, what I know. I heard my son leave this earth. I heard joy in his voice 
we had many other conversations. We had a, a chance to pray together within an hour of the time he left us. And in those last minutes, I heard him greet someone, some spirit, some angel, some, I can't tell you who, but I can tell you that in sharing my story with people over the years, an amazing number of people have told me that at the last moment when their father or their mother or their brother was going, there was someone waiting for them. I don't think we go alone. My son had two last words to say. The last thing, next to the last thing he said was all the highs and hellos. That was third from last. All the highs and hellos. Then after a moment in which he seemed to be listening, he said in awe, like a curtain had been lifted, he said, it's so big and it's so beautiful. Now, he was very tired. But he sounded excited. He sounded like he was leaving. I mean, I really do believe at that moment he was leaving that body, that broken body behind. And at first I thought, oh, hallelujah, God has healed him. And then I said, you earthbound human, what are you thinking? He doesn't need to be healed anymore because his spirit and his soul were not sick. His body was sick, and he left that behind like, like a Kleenex, you know? Have a little runny nose? Go like this? How much thought do you give that Kleenex when you let it go? Not one. Hopefully it goes in the trash can. You don't worry about it. He did not worry about leaving his body behind. He was excited to be going where he was going. What greater gift could a parent be given than to know that where my son went it sounded to me like there were people he knew, spirits accepting whatever that was. And it was big, and it was beautiful. And 20-year-olds don't talk like that, by the way. It was big and beautiful enough to shock him into just saying that. And he was happy and excited to be on his way. You know, grief has a lot of energy. It also causes a lot of stress. Down the road, we've been 11 years Away, and I don't think Allison would mind me saying that on the day of Tony's birthday, when we usually go out and have a small celebration in his honor, we had a little argument. We might have raised our voices to each other. Um, it's 11 years down the road. We've dealt with this. We're, we're good with this. You know, I, I want to share it with people. It still causes stress. Don't be surprised if an anniversary comes up and you are suddenly taken aback by something. You know what? God's still there. Even in that moment, God is still there. He can use our mistakes. He can use our bad experiences. He can use our life if we just surrender it to him. Your testimony can be built by so many things, by your experiences. And you know what? Your story is undeniable. I believe that this book is infallible, but there are a lot of people in this world who don't. I cannot take this book and go sit down with an unbeliever and just start right off saying, this is what it says and you have to believe that, because they don't. They may come to it, and I certainly will try to help that along, but there's one thing they can't argue with. 
That's your story. That's your testimony. You lived it. You earned it. And if you were helped by God through that, they can't deny that. If the power of prayer lifted you up, they can say nothing but, well, I'm not sure I believe in that, but they hear it. They hear it. Use that. God gives it to you in an amazing way. You know what? It amazes me, and I'm about to close here. It amazes me that God, who is the image of perfection, he's like a master painter. He has this masterpiece that is himself hanging on the wall in a... um, Sorry, that was our last family picture just before he left us. This is closing. Celebrate with those who are having joy, but shed tears with those who weep. Matthew 5, 4 said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Sometimes that comfort comes straight from God, from the Holy Spirit. Sometimes that comfort comes from you and me, the hands and feet of Jesus here on the earth. We had two very good friends who, in this time of difficulty, we didn't hear from for quite a long while. It wasn't that they didn't love us. They were afraid. They were afraid that they would not be able to hold it together, that if they called us, they would cry and it would make us cry, that they would hurt and it would make us hurt. Forget that. If you call and you cry, it means to me that you loved my son. It means that you remember him because you called me. Both of them we're back with now, and they are embarrassed to say, but they're very truthful to say, I was afraid I would make it worse, and I thought the best thing I could do is not call you until I could have it under control. I'm going, we don't have it under control. We don't expect you to have it under control. Come on down. Join the party. You're my friend yesterday. Something happens in my life. You're my friend tomorrow. You cry with me, you just tell me you love my son and you love me. That's okay. Some people think I won't know what to say. You know what? It doesn't matter. There is no magic word when someone has lost someone that will make it all better. Time and Jesus are about the only things I think that will make it all better. But you know what you can do? You can just be there for your friend, for your neighbor. God has that painting on the wall. But unlike a museum that puts the big painting on the wall and then you come in and look at the museum piece, God's painting is himself, but you can't see it in the museum. There's a mirror in front of that painting, and you stand where you can see the mirror and you see the painting that is God. Guess what that mirror is? It's imperfect. It's flawed. It's not the smoothest, best mirror in the world. It's me. And it's you. And it's you. People who look at us should see the imperfect, flawed, because I am flawed, reflection of the perfection of God. I fail that so often. But we're still called to be that mirror i got to say one more thing before I close. I'm going to read Jesus' words from John 14, 27. You can turn there while I'm saying this. Again, there is no right or wrong way to grieve as long as you don't get stuck. 
my discussion this morning may have raised some feelings in other people's hearts that you have trouble dealing with. If you leave here and something is troubling you, please call me or Pastor Aris or Pastor Mike when he gets back or, or one of our elders. There are people here to talk with you. Call a friend. Talk to me. Talk to someone. Don't let the memories and the emotions that might have been stirred up here trouble you because there are people to comfort you. There is a God to comfort you. Jesus leaves us with this, and these are his words. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. There are a hundred other verses that are almost as good as that, and we're not going to use any of them for a person hurting. It's this. For a moment, more than this. After you're there in care, we'll get to this. I want to thank you for your time and your patience and for allowing me to share these words with you. Could you pray with me for just a moment, please? Then I'm going to ask the singers to come back up. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your Son, Jesus. We thank you that in all of our troubles, you have told us that you are the Comforter. You are the one who can soothe our souls. Lord, help us when the time comes to be a friend to those in loss. Help us to remember that you came first, that you in the body of your son Jesus, wept over the loss of someone. Wept because you felt the pain of those around you and you encouraged them. Help us, Lord, to follow that wonderful example that you came here to give. And help us to remember that awesome testimony from Martha. You are the resurrection and the life. We thank you, we praise you, and we thank you for this time here together. In the name of your son Jesus, we pray. Amen.